my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Our Black Gay Diaspora Podcast. My name is Eric, and I am joining you today as a guest of this platform with the returnee, Gamal G. Tarawa, who has been on this platform a couple times. He is a very, very dear friend, and he has suggested that because of Pride Month that he interviewed me and I guess reveal a little bit more about who I am apart from the podcast. So without further ado, I will hand the reins over to Mr. Tarawa. Hey, G, and welcome. Thank you, Eric. How are you doing today? I'm good. Uh, you know me very well. So as you know, I've been having a lot of activity. You may ask that question during this interview, but yeah, I'm doing really well. So you're now going to tell me what questions I should ask? No, of course not. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting because I thought it would be, I thought it would be interesting to sort of like have you on the other side of the microphone, so to speak. Because, you know, we've we've had lots of conversations offline. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be nice for people to have an understanding of who you are and what this is about for you and where you come from and, you know, just something about Eric, understanding Eric. If I could start at the beginning. Ooh, of my life. Huh? Of my life. <laughs> yeah, but not, not necessarily your life, but just a little bit about who you are, where you've come from, how you've got onto this journey. Just, just start there and then we can start to build on that. Oh, okay. That is a very good question, one I don't think about much these days, but... Yeah, I've shared a few times that I've been a digital nomad for the last three and a half years, mainly, well, yeah, mostly in Europe between Sweden and the United Kingdom. I am American, (laughs) originally from Arizona, which I noticed, and I think I've mentioned it to you a few times, I've started to lead with that more when people here in Europe ask me where I'm from, even though I haven't lived there for many years. My family of origin is still there, my nuclear family, but I spent the last 27 years I spent in Los Angeles. I've discovered podcasting in 2020 through my friend, my very good friend, Jenny in Los Angeles. We had a podcast for two years called Wallflowers in Bloom, which was her idea where we talked about introversion, something that we connected on. We've known each other for a long time. And that kind of whet my appetite for not only interviewing, which is something that I had done years ago as a journalism major in college, but also just to get comfortable with sharing a bit more with who I am on a public platform, which is something I hadn't really been comfortable doing ever. (laughs) And then that kind of morphed into our Black Gay Diaspora podcast two years ago through me being in Europe and just wanting to discover more of the Black LGBTQ plus citizens here in Europe, and it's grown to what it is now two years later. And that's how I know you, G. So, yeah. Mm. That was very nice. But I want to go back. I want to dig a little deeper in that that story because it's it's a fascinating story. I mean, for example, when did you know that you were gay? I mean, this is Pride Month. Uh 
So when did you know you were gay and how did that start to manifest in your life? How you came to be the wonderful person we all know and love today. What's your journey with your own sexual orientation? Hmm. I like that you use journey as uh, part of this because I don't think in life in general, there's ever really a destination. Mm. But it was particularly with my journey with the self-acceptance as far as my attraction to men. You know, a lot of people I've heard said that they knew as young as four or five years old. I could definitely look back and see that there were little clues, but I didn't have the language for it and definitely didn't say, oh, I'm attracted to men or attracted to the same gender. I actually came out when I was 28 years old. Mm. I always say I stopped running from myself and said, okay, I am gay. That process, I think, probably started maybe on a, a minute level when my best friend from high school, Jeremy, when I found out he was gay our last year of high school, he was the first person that I was confirmed that was gay. You know, I can't even say that I was denying that. It was just like, oh, it's real. Like, I remember when I found out, I was like, this thing is real. And I accepted him for the most part for who he is and who, who he was then as a gay man. But for myself, I wasn't really able to accept that. I didn't really grow up with religion in the home. I know that kind of maybe influenced it in some ways, but our family history, at least in my formative years around religion, was it was very hit and miss. I think for me, the struggle was that being gay did not fit into being a good little boy or my idea of not really so much of as a man, but who I felt I needed to present in order to, to be liked. Mm. And so I would always find these ways when it was on the surface of awareness of denying it, not even consciously, I can't really say, just, just maybe ignoring it. It's one that I still kind of ask myself about from time to time. I mean, yeah, there were moments. I remember when puberty hit and the body starts to change and, and then sexual fantasies. And I do remember my first clear sexual fantasy as a teenager. Girls were not involved. Part of my journey, too, is that I just, as a person, I always knew that I was smart. That was something that I was told from as young as I remember, book smart at least. But I grew up in a home where definitely sexuality was not talked about. And then even just physicality or any of that wasn't really talked about. I would say, and I think my siblings would agree that we grew up in a kind of a repressed home. I watch people with their children now or people that I perceive to be good parents. And, and I never heard that I was attractive. All those things that I think kids need to hear that, you know, you're my best little boy or you're my best little girl or that you're attractive. Mm. I, I never thought I was ugly, but if people would ask me how I looked, I didn't know how to answer that. What was happening around 28 then? 28 for me was I moved to L.A. when I was 22 from Arizona to pursue the dream of being an actor. Mm. You know, things kind of happen right away within nine months, because I, I can be very ambitious and very focused. And within nine months, I had an agent and I was being sent out for commercial work. That was actually a conversation a few days ago. Somebody asked me about that. But I, I moved there with a dream and not really a plan. I remember my college roommate used to say, and I didn't get it, but I kind of felt what he meant is that I remember he said once, you have a lot of self-confidence, but you don't have a lot of self-esteem. And that kind yeah. of 
was in my face when I moved to LA because it's a very image oriented town in some ways. And then, you know, trying to get into the entertainment industry. And so I just was doing a lot of comparing. I, I just didn't like who I saw in the mirror at the time. And not just the looks, but also my persona. Most people perceive me to be more reserved and I can be until you get to know me. And so I was struggling with that and, and how I wasn't very comfortable in social situations. I was also just finding ways to kind of detach from my emotions. And that kind of came to a head when I was 28. What preceded me coming out is I just had to work on me, Eric, and acknowledging the ways that I was being self-destructive. Mm-hmm. And so once I started to address those challenges, I always used to joke that I didn't come out of the closet. It was just the door open and I just fell out. <laughs> it was like breathing fresh air. I remember the first time that I acknowledged to myself that I had a crush on someone. And that was very liberating. You know, those first moments of me recognizing the men who found me attractive, that was also interesting. Yeah, yeah. What were the reactions of people around you? Ooh, oh my God, are you holding down to your seat? <laughs> I've yet to meet anyone who was surprised. <laughs> mm-hmm. Who was in my uh, personal life, at least. For a lot of people, it said it made sense, especially female friends or, or women. I don't know if it's shame, but I kind of cringe when I, when I remember that I used to say that I was straight because... <laughs> All the clues were there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but nobody was surprised, except for my friend Jeremy, my high school friend. I don't know if the word was surprised, but he kind of was in the way because he said, well, you always were okay with me. Or I was for the most part, because part of our journey as friends is because of my low self-esteem. And maybe there was a moment when I moved to LA where that was pushing to the surface of me acknowledging being gay. And so a way subconsciously was to to push that down was that I did something that was not very nice. I wrote him a really horrible letter and we didn't see each other for six years and not because he didn't want to continue the friendship. It was because of me. And I can look back now and say that was one of the ways that my not wanting to accept my reality as a gay man kind of manifested it. Your own internal homophobia. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So when you say, because I noticed both the times when you mentioned about Jeremy uh, coming to terms with Jeremy's sexual orientation, you said for the most part. Well, because that action kind of lets me know that I wasn't fully okay with it. Mm. Uh, part of the story, um, I'll just tell what it was for me. I do try to protect other people's privacy that are a part of my life. But, you know, I moved to L.A. with somebody that I met in college. We became friends. There were some good aspects of it. There were some very, very unhealthy aspects of it. From the gate, it was pretty codependent. It took me a long time to fully acknowledge that I was attracted to him. I used to say we were like fire in a match. I was reserved, but he saw something else in me. Just that dance of whatever it was just started to form. We were the only black men in this theater department. Mm. 
both were being told that we were good at what we did, but we were aware early on of the images of black men. And we always wanted to, to expand that. And for me as a black man, you know, coming from Arizona and sounding the way that I do and, and having moments where not everyone, but people used to say to me that I wasn't black enough or that I was an Oreo or whatever. And those were part of my struggles too during those years. And then him being identified as a black man, but he was mixed heritage. And so we just really bonded. And then we moved to LA and lived together for six years. And uh, yeah. Thank you. I mean, one of the things there that I was going to come to the area, but you kind of stepped into it. Give me a nice little segue. You, you've spoken about the gay journey coming out, but what about the black journey? And at what point did those two start to come together? Within my own personal dialogue, I've never doubted or been ashamed of being black. Mm. It's just been that thing of as early as I can remember, you sound a certain way, you talk proper, you know, being book smart and, and how some found ways to use that as a, a means of saying that I wasn't black enough, whatever that means. So within my own personal uh, dialogue, I was never challenged by that and definitely not within my family. I'm, I'm actually very grateful that that was one of the things that was fostered with my family was knowing history and not just what it, the media puts out there, but the history that is in books and is out there, but a lot of times uh, popular media doesn't put out there. So I'm really, really grateful for my family for fostering that for me. And I think that's this journey of being with our Black Gay Diaspora podcast is a part of that. It really is. Yeah, I have an insatiable thirst to want to know about us wherever we are throughout the world. I was focused more on the people that were, were being negative and, and that kind of tripped me up. And what do you think that was about? Needing to say, and. <laughs> Whenever that was challenged, just to say whatever. You know, that's easy. What else do you have? Oh. But I didn't know how to do that then. And I can honestly say it wasn't until I really left the United States. It was kind of leading up to that, but when I really left the United States to want to, to live abroad three years ago in 2019, and then really with this platform, it's really just given me so much courage within myself and or permission to say to myself, this is who I am. And that's it. Mm. What was happening between 28 and 2019 when you left? So what was going on in that space? What was pushing you towards this decision? To leave the United States? Mm. I've always fancied that books was kind of my escape early on. Mm. My family, we, we love books. My mother's side of the family. When I discovered James Baldwin when I was about 14, and I heard this word that was so exotic to me, expatriate. And I was like, ooh, what is that? And I found out that this man <laughs> who was Black and American and gay, I knew he was gay, you know, just based on the work that he produced. I connected to him initially through his book, Hotel on the Mountain, which is semi-autobiographical about him growing up in an abusive home with the, the character growing up with his father or stepfather. And that was kind of a salvation for me because when I was nine, my mother married a man, my sibling's father, and it was not a healthy home, <laughs> to say the least. And when I discovered that story, that book, initially, just the, the story itself, it was like, oh my God, this story was written about me in a roundabout way, but the character's journey was from the 1930s. Yeah. 
And then when I found out about James Baldwin, just as a Black man, as an American, and that he lived most of his adult life outside of the U.S., I was fascinated because it kind of opened up the borders for me to say, I can live anywhere. But I wasn't ready for it. And, and it wasn't just him. It was Richard Wright. It was Josephine Baker, of course. A lot of people know who she is. And, and quite a few Black American creatives who left the U.S., especially before the civil rights movement. So it's always been a seed for me. My last year of high school, I actually went on a trip to London. <laughs> that for me was like, wow, it was just amazing. And I remember seeing Black people that I knew were there based on some of the music artists that I was discovering at the time. And I have a picture of it, not with me here, but it's funny, you know, finding out about you that you were, you know, with the London Metropolitan Police Force. And I took a picture at Hyde Park of a Black Bobby. <laughs> I ran up to it. I was oh my God, can I take a picture? And he let me. When we started to become friends, and I remember at one point, I was like, oh my God, I wonder if that was G. <laughs> I think you came into the force a few years after that. I go through periods where I rediscover Baldwin again. It wasn't just about the sexual orientation. It was about how he carried himself, how he spoke his truth, and how he was unafraid in speaking his truth. How much time do you want for your progress? Mm. <laughs> yeah. I think that kind of set a seed in you, didn't it? Yeah, it did. Okay, so the seeds planted over the years of reading the books. At what point did this start to become something that was going to be, you know, out of the fantasy into the reality? August 2015. Oh, wow. So precise. Okay, what happened in August 2015? It was when I came to Sweden in August of 2015, Sweden and, and Denmark particular Sweden, that the idea returned to me kind of out of nowhere. And I've been in other cities like San Francisco, New York, and definitely saw myself in a fantasy world living there. But Stockholm was the first city where I felt it. And it really weirded me out. Almost instantaneous when I got into the city and the country. You know, me being a Black man, being American, I was like, this makes no sense. <laughs> Why Sweden? Over time, I did discover Swedes are known to be on the surface reserved. That was me. I believe it was that energy that I was around, and all of a sudden, I didn't feel foreign, even though I was a foreigner in a foreign land. What were the positive things that were said about you as a child or growing up? Smart and nice. I don't know. I struggle with that one still. <laughs> what did you interpret that to mean? That I was... A pushover. So that's my own judgment. And what else did people say? Ooh, you're going deep. <laughs> I always used to say, you could call me stupid. I never felt challenged by that. The external part of me, yeah, you could maybe nick a wound. I remember you told me a story, and it's a story that stuck with me. Forgive me if I get the story wrong, hopefully you'll clarify, but you told me a story of you were, I think, about three or four and you were cooking. Yeah, about five or six, yeah. And your aunt came in and she said something. Ooh, yeah. She always said you were fiercely independent from as early as I can remember. But she came to visit. This is in Phoenix. I was cooking my own breakfast over the stove. And I do remember overhearing her say to my mother, first of all, why is he doing that? He's too young to be doing that. My mother saying, well, it's okay with him. 
and her saying that he needs to learn how to need people. That's a very powerful statement. Yeah. Have you learned how to need people? It's a journey. And how is that going? I'm definitely conscious of it in a way that I'm willing to acknowledge that it can be a struggle still for me to talk about it more and to find ways to let go. (laughs) When you say let go, let go of what? The million and one ways I can find to feel like that I'm in control. A lot of times assisting. (laughs) I'll help out. That way I can kind of control the environment. What does that give you? It's a security. And I definitely know it's connected to my upbringing. Definitely my formative years. A friend shared about that a few years ago, about discovering that cleaning was a way to feel secure because this person didn't feel secure in the home. And when that was said, it was like a light bulb for me because I've always been known to be fastidious, (laughs) having things a certain way. And when that person said that, I got it. Through that person sharing it with me, it was therapy for me. Part of my childhood, too, is that we moved around a lot in Arizona and then eventually outside of the state off and on for a few years. I hated it because I never felt secure. I never knew when we were going to pick up and leave Mm. and maybe subconsciously cleaning a space or, or organizing a space was a way for me to feel safe. One of the things that I think I've enjoyed about having your friendship is I love your honesty with yourself. It encourages me to be even more honest. And I'd like to think I'm pretty honest. (laughs) Where do you think you got that from? What does it give you? I had to say, well, how can I accept my feelings? I'm not a a religious person, but I definitely believe in spirituality. And for me, spirituality is is just really connecting to positive and acknowledging negative energy, either within myself or within others. Once I walked down that path, it really was a game changer for me because I do have the choice as to what type of energy I'm willing to connect to. Yeah. I see that in your interactions and I see that in the way people engage with you as well. You attract good people. So you've got all this build up and all this stuff that's brought you to a point where, so what was the name of the first podcast you did with your friend? Wildflowers in Bloom. Um, It was about introversion. We had a tagline. I can't remember. It's the episodes are actually still up. So you can look up the the title of it. Jenny and I were the co-host of it. So tell me about that. How did that go? What was that about? What was the theme? That was about just accepting that everybody has a different type of energy. Jenny grew up with two dads. Uh, One of them is a really good friend of mine. They were a couple at one time, and she's very solid as far as her awareness of herself as a woman and as an introvert. I had known her since she was a teenager. She's, you know, older now, was married and has a daughter. She came up to me and she goes, we're very similar. My friendship with her, I always say, is a reminder that, you know, a lot of time we focus on people who are our age or older, but we can also find that wisdom from people who are younger than us, I believe. And she's definitely one of those people. So anyway, even before the podcast, when I was still in L.A., we were just bonding at, you know, different events. Her dad or, you know, family, their their network of friends. And it's 
uh, Hispanic culture, Mexican mostly, mm -hmm. and similar to, I guess, maybe Black Americans in some way to be known to be very vibrant and very colorful. But within herself, she knows that there's aspects of that that are her, but there's some that are not. And when she started to talk to me about her own challenges, I related to that because I do believe that as a Black man, sometimes people expect you to act a certain way. And sometimes it's a bit more <laughs> aggressive, a bit more extrovert. Yeah, I struggled with that too when people would be like, oh, you're not like the other Black people I've met before. So with that podcast, it just really helped me to learn that I can just be myself. And I can honestly say that with doing that platform, I feel like I've become a bit more outgoing because I'm like, this is part of who I am. You know, I think you have a very dynamic personality and I saw that the first time we met in person. I have that within me too on some level. But, you know, some of us are like you, where we walk into a room and it lights up. Me, I always used to say, I'm like an electric stove. It takes a minute to warm up. But once it does, you know, it's there. <laughs> the heat is there. Mm. At what point did that conversation between you and Jenny become an idea for a podcast? Right away. It was February 2020, a month or so before the pandemic. I was here in Sweden. I had the background with being a graphic designer of organizing some of the stuff as far as the logo. I made a logo. I know about video and sound editing. I can help with that. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to worry about looking for someone to do that. She was the idea person. She was also the heart of it. I kind of joked with you and with another friend of ours, Brian, who I've met through this platform. I have a list. <laughs> and I learned with Jenny right away that, okay, that's good. Let's, let's also have some heart in this too. The first couple of episodes with that podcast, it was just the two of us. And then she was the one that led the way with saying, we need to reach out to other people. Hmm. Our first guest that we didn't know, because we did have some guests, people that I knew and people that she knew, but our very first guest that we didn't know was a guy in Australia and she reached out to him and he has a big platform. And when she did that, I was like, oh, wow. Okay. We can do that too. We can reach out to people we don't know. Yeah, I can see where this is going. Yeah. How many episodes did you do? We had our first episode, I believe it was late March or April of 2020. And then our last episode was April of 2022. And it hasn't really shut down. It's just, of course, I have this platform, but, you know, she has her own life in Los Angeles. If that comes up again, I'm definitely open to do that again. So then the idea of our Black gay diaspora. How did that idea start to manifest itself? That, I always say, was like a God shot. That happened in, again, February 2021, so like a year after uh, Wallflowers in Bloom. And I was in dead of winter here in Stockholm. And it was a night where I couldn't really sleep. Uh, I don't really know what divine intervention is. I've never looked at that word, but I believe it was something divine because I couldn't sleep that night. And this idea just started to form and it was very, very organic. It was so organic. And at that point I was starting to understand the importance that when an idea hits, write it down. And I spent the next couple hours, I was writing, I still have it, the list of potential names for the platform, the premise of it, the mission for it, the outline of it. And also, I wrote down a preliminary guest list, and that was all within that first few hours of the idea coming to me. Your first 
guest. First episode was uploaded April 14th, 2021. I only know that because I just had to look it up recently. So the idea formed, I transitioned back to the United Kingdom in Liverpool. I had an American friend who had moved there. So I was like, I've never been to Liverpool. And so I went there and rented a small space. And then that's when the real planning began. And I had that preliminary guest list and this person was on it. This was somebody that I knew had done some work as a professional actor, singer, and had transitioned his career into directing movies and television. This particular day, I realized, what is that saying? Shit, I get off the pot. And I was like, I need to do something right now. I had the idea. Leading up to that, I was still kind of nervous about me being the host by myself because I didn't know if I could do that. Again, the voice of positivity was just like, you know, send him an email. If he says yes, fine. If he says no, that's okay. And I love that because when I have those clear moments, it's like, just let it go, release it. And so I sent him an email and that was around 3, 3.30 that afternoon. And it was around five, my phone dinged and it was him. And he was like, oh my God, I just loved your email. And I really loved the way you wrote this message to me. And I would love to, to be a guest. And yeah. <laughs> I could feel the emotion as you were talking about that. What are you feeling right now? A lot of times I'm becoming aware and, you know, I've had moments throughout my life, but definitely, you know, with this platform is maybe just get out of my own way. So that was the first one that kicked it off. And here we are in 2023. How many episodes so far? Episode 58 just aired last or uploaded last Wednesday. Today's the 10th of June that this is recording. So a few days before that. I mean, the last stats I saw that 47%, I believe, were from the States. Yes. I was looking the other day, I was trying to see if I could find anything that's equivalent to your podcast. And I was pleased to say that there isn't. I don't think there's anybody who has spoken to such a wide span of black gay men around the world. How does that make you feel? It's meant to be. Yeah. Definitely needed. Just myself personally as, as a black gay man, it's definitely needed. We do have platforms out there. We do have public figures are out there. And I'm never negating those people. But we need a wider range. We need to have a more diverse representation of who we are. Yeah. But the thing that I like, Eric, about what you do and what your podcast is, and I was looking at other ones, there's other podcasts where people are, and I'm going to use the word with a small p, pontificating, telling people how they think the world should be. And what I like about the way your interview style and you as a person is that you allow people to be themselves. You allow people to come to you as they want to come. You allow people to be real. Is that something you do consciously or is that something you've just acquired? I think it's subconscious. I mean, I'm becoming more aware on some level in what you just said. It's not calculated. <laughs> I think it's tied into just my curiosity with people. I do have questions. I, I love to research people. 
so that I can let them know that you do interest me. I'm not just asking you just to ask you. But even though I do that, I want it to be as much of a conversation as possible. And in order for that to happen, I have to make sure that they know it's about them. Out of all of these interviews that you've done over the past three years or so, Mm -hmm. what are your main takeaways? I said it before, but that it's needed. There's a lot of similarities. Similarities more so in how we deal with these structures outside of Black communities globally. I like that you say, look for the solutions, but for me, it is hard to overlook that structural racism exists uh, because all of us across the globe are experiencing it it on some level or in some way. Okay. I hear the we. What is Eric getting from this? What is Eric's takeaways? That I deserve to, or no, no, not deserve. That's not the right word because that's taking it outside of myself, that I'm meant to be heard. I've always wanted to be heard. I didn't realize the only way that could happen is if I just spoke. I was waiting for permission to be heard. There's also a school of thought that says we can't hear until we learn to listen. Mm. And one of the things I think you've done and you do very well, you've learned to listen. You listen very powerfully. And when people are listened to, it's healing. You're a healer. Do you see yourself in that way? When I was 11, I remember hearing the word therapist and knowing enough about it to say, I want to be a therapist. I do sometimes have awarenesses that this is part of that. I didn't go to school for that. I've been in therapy. So yeah, I I never thought of the word healing, but I definitely thought, well, maybe this is a way, um, kind of like writing those things that always come in in and out of my life are those gifts. I used to think that if I acknowledge a gift within myself, that was me leading with ego. This platform, no. Hmm. It's acknowledging the gift saying thank you to the universe for it and how can I use this gift to be of maximum service to others. That's very powerful. That's a very powerful statement. It's a very powerful sort of thing to become aware of. And um, so I'm I'm just absorbing what you just said. It's I mean you do this to me a lot. Give me moments of pause. Moments to sorry. Give me a moment. It's supposed to be the other way around. (laughs) See, you're doing it again. You're healing. Stop it. (laughs) Oh, okay. So what would you say then are the main things you would like people to get? If they listen to the whole series, what would you say are the key themes that you would hope people would get? What would be your top five things? The first two that come to mind is that individually you matter. Yeah. Secondly, that we do have the tools to build a community. The tagline is together celebrating our global community. A recent guest, George Kachimanga, a Malawian advocate, I like the way he said it, is that we need to believe and push towards being 
economically self-sufficient. We deserve that too. You know, one of the things I've learned from my straight counterparts since doing this platform, mostly Black, is they're surprised that we have the same challenges as they do Uh around gaining generational wealth and financial independence. A guy I interviewed, he said, I forget the word he used, but he said, I didn't like using mainstream community. The larger community leads with their media and all that. And I believe I'm a part of that too, on some level, but we're not on the same level. And we're not on the same level, most of us within our Black communities. So I want us to be able to build that for ourselves. Yes, it's a nice aspiration. Uh, Is it achievable? Yes. Do you think we will achieve it? I can't do it by myself. That's where I'm at now. I can't do it by myself. I have my strengths. Knowing you and you're a part of this, I'm at a place now where I'm being more upfront with people behind the scenes that I can't do this by myself. The most successful people, they have a team. Yeah. Campfire group. Are they part of a team? Exactly. Like when you say that, yeah. How do you go about finding the people? I think of careers. Google is the main source. Finding you. Every now and again, I just do a random search. Black LGBT people in the UK. I remember when I found your interview with, I can't think of the name right now. Serenity and Leadership. That's it. Thank you. And... Oh, a black gay pop. I hadn't thought of that. What you said was really powerful to me. The people that I've I've reached out to so far, they've sparked something in me. Like, I want to know more. I've had some people that reached out to me. and, And one in particular, someone here said they listened to that episode and it was really powerful to them. And I was glad they said that because it reminded me it was powerful for me, too. She's a young rapper in her early 20s, Z Sage out of Chicago. And she reached out to me last year. When she reached out to me, I was confused at first. I was like, I'm not a rapper. I'm not part of the hip hop community. I was thinking, I don't know what I was thinking, but I was I was going to get in the way of, of an amazing interview. Yeah. And what I learned from her is, again, you know, you never know where you're going to find your angels. And similar to this conversation, of course, the focus was her. And then she let me know what the podcast meant to to her. Um, and that was one of those moments where I was like, okay, this is bigger than me. I have this image when 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 I when I dip in and out of your podcast. And when I when I started doing my own interviews and things like that on TV, somebody said, Who are you talking to? And the image I have is that young black gay boy who's listening to this on their phone, hidden quietly, scared that that somebody will find out they're gay. Yet every episode they listen to gives them some strength. They need to hear this voice. They need to hear that they matter, that they can come out of that place. They can stop hiding under the duvet. Mm. For me, when I listen to your podcast, that's the image I have of it gets people out from under the duvet. The quality of your guests as well are um, phenomenal. You don't interview victims. You interview people who are achievers. 
I think it's inspirational for people in a lot of ways. But then I'd also like to ask, what is it giving you as a person? You know, you're, you're absorbing all this wisdom, mm-hmm. all these different perceptions. Are you aware of how it's helping you or what it's doing to you? Yes. Okay. And what are you aware of? That I can achieve the things that feel right for me in my professional life. And also my personal life, because it's all of it. (laughs) But I'm more conscious of my professional life. I worked in corporate America for years, and, and this is not negating that experience for myself or anyone else. I know today I have a choice. I didn't think I had a choice. I thought, well, if I land into this position or this company making this amount of money, then I should be grateful. And I was grateful, but I was focused more on the money that I was earning. And that's not bad. I would like to earn that money again and more. <laughs> Put that out there and manifest it. But because of gainful employment and I was making good money, I was ignoring the fact that my own experience that were um, negative. Mm. Working with certain individuals who wanted me to work, but were not supportive. I read it in an article a couple of years ago that work is a relationship too. And I didn't see work as a relationship. Mm-hmm. Ignoring that, you know, we spend eight plus hours a day that needs to be healthy too. And I ignored that. So back to where it's at now, I'm working towards a goal. And so that means that as long as my needs are met, I may, for the moment, need to forego some of the flashier stuff. That was a struggle for me for a while. Talking with you now and and all the things that I'm learning and people are sharing with me because of this platform, it's like, well, um, something's going on here. Back to faith. I always say faith and believe. I've always had a faith in the outer positive energy. I didn't realize until I started this journey initially three and a half years ago with pursuing wanting to live outside of the U.S. and then with this platform that because of that faith, that means I can believe in myself. And so it's part of that. And taking that faith, on Monday you embark on a new chapter. Yes. (laughs) Before we say what that chapter is, can you just say how it came about? You know, I've mentioned that I've lived most of the last three and a half years outside of the U.S. I'm American. That's my home country. I don't believe it's home anymore. When I went back last year for seven months, it kind of solidified that it's not home for me. I'm a digital nomad. I'm a resident, obviously, of the United States. I'm not a resident here in Europe, so I can stay for a certain amount of time and then I have to leave what seems to be the the right or the easy solution, depending on who you ask, is to return to the U.S. This time around, when I thought about it, because it is very easy to do, it didn't feel right. For me, spirituality, I think, is connected to, as a friend used to say years ago, to intuition. We all have it. And whenever I thought about it, it just didn't feel right for me. And so that day that I realized it was nearing the end of my time leaving here again in Sweden, I went online and found an article, Digital Nomads, Where Do They Like to Go? Cape Town came up in the list. 
I was like, oh, okay. Timing, energy, whatever you want to call it. Someone here because of the podcast, Alicia. When I was in England, almost six months I was there, I got an email on Instagram, a direct message from a woman here in Sweden. And she's like, I'm a straight woman, married. And I found your podcast. And she just said, I want to let you know that it really affects me. And I learned so much from it from myself as a woman of color from South Africa. And I let her know that I was returning to Sweden. And we met up and she's one of my friends now. And she's from Cape Town. It's not why I chose Cape Town, but this article and then said, oh, Alicia's from Cape Town. So I said, I'll go to Cape Town. I had a list of places I was going to rent and she helped me decide the best options. And so I'll be leaving for Cape Town. I was just recognizing the emotions that you were going through as you were sharing that. Some people would say, isn't that a kind of unsettling lifestyle. How do you keep yourself grounded moving around like that? It was an adjustment. It sounded great in theory because I had looked it up before. I discovered a podcast that two women, Black American lesbians had for a few years that was very successful. They gave me the final push that I didn't realize I needed. I needed to know not that there were Black Americans or Black people who lived this lifestyle, but also members of the Black LGBT community, wherever they were. So I, I knew it could happen. Mm. But when I came back to Sweden as part of this journey in October 2019, a month later, I did have kind of a, I don't know if it was a panic or whatever, but I was like, oh my God, I just left my job of 20 plus years. <laughs> what the hell? I get why we need roots. Mm. Well, the first year or so, I was moving like a month or so at a time. And that was a bit jarring emotionally, but an American acquaintance here, she's been doing this for years and I reached out to her and she explained to me the adjustments that you need to have. You need to give yourself a few days to cycle through those emotions. And then a year, almost a year into this, I met a black American woman who's been doing this for years. She's actually recently become a resident of Portugal. We haven't met yet, but she's one of my best friends now. And she shared that too. I think even the traumas from our past could be tools to help within the present. As I mentioned earlier, we moved around a lot and I didn't like it. Going back to that period of my life, I know that I can do it. And I know what's different now is that I'm not doing it because of trauma or because of anything negative. It's, it's part of a bigger purpose. It's part of a grander scheme. And so once I started to realize, oh, I do have things from my past that I can draw from to help me do this. Mm -hmm. And then someone here gave me a book. I, I still need to finish it from a, a lesbian woman from the UK who traveled a lot for work. And she said, find something, a little small rug or ways to make a place home. I found that out like two years ago, but that didn't really form until I was back in the UK and I was in Brighton. And for the first time for Christmas, since being on this journey, I bought little Christmas decorations and I bought a Christmas candle. And that was so nice because I knew I wasn't going to be there full time, but I was fortunate to find a place where I rented most of those five plus months when I was in Brighton. Find little things to make home. And also that phrase, home is where the heart is. I understand that more. It really is. Yeah, it's great to have the outside stuff, the house or whatever is home for you, but it really is where your heart is. 
So on Monday, you embark to your next home. <laughs> yes. So this is your first trip to Africa mm-hmm. and to South Africa. So not even Africa. You're going across the whole of Africa to a very powerful city. I mean, how's that feel? It hasn't really hit me because the networking and again, back to this platform, my uh, episode two guest, Victor Chikalogwe, who's from Malawi, he's lived in Cape Town. He's one of the directors of PASUP, which is an organization. I could put that in the description when this uploads. Um, I reached out to him when I had firmed up my plans and let him know that I was coming. And then a few days ago, he said, oh, I look forward to seeing you when you get here. And I have a few people I want to connect you with. <laughs> Andrea Kronland, her magazine, Cruel Magazine, it's an Afro-Swedish publication that I've been writing for for about a year. She's given me a contact to reach out to. So I feel like I'm already planning routes even before I got there. And it's all thanks to these people. It's all thanks to you. You've generated something to attract these people into your life. You know, they wouldn't come to you if you weren't open enough to receive them. You're an incredible man, Eric. I'm learning to listen and not say too much when you say that. (laughs) Then listen and don't say too much. So, okay, I'll shut up. (laughs) You know, we're coming to the end of this here, but I just want to say is that you're more than a friend. You're a confidant. We've only known each other, I think it's just about a year or not even a year yet. No, it's about a year, maybe a year and a half, coming up on a year and a half. It just feels like you've always been there. And, you know, when I came over to Sweden, I know what you mean when you say you feel at home there. I can see it. I can see the energy. I can see the network. And not only that, you've built a global network around you. And it's interesting to see where that will take you next. If you were to look back on your life in your final days, what would you be most proud of? That I didn't let fear stop me. Amen. I feel that. I know this is about me, but you were the first person from this platform to become a friend. That was because of you. I remember when you suggested that we remain in contact after I interviewed you. It wasn't here. It was more like my go-to. Like, ooh, that's personal. (laughs) But something in your energy said, okay. And I remember the very first time we had a conversation that wasn't recorded. You, you have a way of really uh, encouraging very deep conversations. You give people space to be themselves but also to look at themselves. Thank you. Mr. Eric Taylor would be. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.